I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source. With a last burst of wind in our sails, a last gentle guffaw from a listener we came to adore, the cartoonist Ed Corrin. You knew Ed Corrin, too, for those furry, quizzical characters he drew and captioned portraits of our general bemusement through a 60-year run in The New Yorker magazine. His studio, it turned out, was in rural Vermont, where he'd got hooked on our public radio shows over the years. Finally, just a few years ago, we met the sheer joy of that man face to face. Ed Corrin knew that the laws of entropy, as he put it in conversation, were not in his favor. But he did not believe in dying. And in this case, I don't either. Most of a year ago, in the late stages of treatment for inoperable lung cancer, he told me he had withdrawn from hospice care because Hospice framed its mission around death, and his passion, as he said, was life and living. What I heard was not the sound of denial or evasion of anything. I felt he was embracing a truth that I had felt from the start of our precious friendship. Ed Curran stood for the elusive strands of humanity that do not die. The wonder of our conversation has been discovering, oddly enough, that we could talk about such things. And so we did. Producer Mary McGrath and I visiting Ed and his wife, Curtis, late in March up in Mary's ski country. As we entered his studio this time, he was absorbed in reading a New Yorker profile of Milton Glaser, the godfather of modern graphic design. And what he and I share is a lot, which is that he's an artist. He loved to draw. What else makes the connection with your heart? Well, he's always, always thinking about the, the physical, verbal, and oral interconnection of what he's doing, which is what I'm doing, and the moral connection. So that things have to appeal to minds who understand what he's up to and who can follow him, because he's like a gazelle. He's an intellectual creative drawing gazelle. And he says, don't ask me about my influences. I have so many of them. Damned if I don't say the same thing. What makes a cartoonist, after all? Someone who is it's like a ping pong ball between morality, how people behave, how they don't want to behave, who have some degree of, a great degree of literacy, mm-hmm. verbal, visual, um, and uh, human. There are so many questions I want to ask you. First, what's the secret of being the favorite man in Vermont, which you are? Well, that's the other thing, is generosity to those fellow humans who are good people. It's related to my question, how did you become my favorite person, which you are? Well, you're a real Vermonter, that's why. (laughs) And through Mary, who is probably here every weekend. You know, Lester Young, the saxophone player, mm-hmm. they called him the Pope of Love. You're kind of the cartoonist's Pope of Love. Well, it seems to me work out that way. I'm sometimes embarrassed by my reach and popularity because I feel I don't deserve it because I'm a nasty man <laughs> and I'm a scold. But I, my, my world here in Vermont is so much broader, really, than it's ever it would have been had I stuck around New York. 
different, but a lot broader across mm. so many different social spectrums. I mean, many, many, many. Go on about that. I think there are people at the New Yorker still who wondered, why in the world did he ever leave New York? Yeah, because I love New York. I can't get enough of New York. And my regret is now I can't go down there, or anywhere for that matter. Speak of all the things that are different, Ed, in Vermont, starting maybe with being famously on the volunteer fire department of Brookfield. Well, that was one way of reaching out and getting to know what this town is like and where this huge social disparity exists, but which disappears when we have a common task. And it's kind of symbolic in a way, because we all, we don't talk politics, mercifully. We don't talk about anything other than the fire, Mm -hmm. the incident, or a wreck, which Mm -hmm. is oftentimes the case. People from other places speeding to the slopes through our patch of the woods here. So um, it's very, uh, illuminates me and my life as much as anything else. Does it feed your cartoons? Well, to a degree in that I see the, the huge social gulfs between people and how they live. Because one of the things you do as a member of the fire department, you interact with all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, all kinds of homes, kinds of ways of life, all kinds of reactions. There's gratitude, there's bother, there's irritation. There's all sorts of human behavior that I use in ways that I can't take. Picture that interacting with my love of, say, Tintoretto or of Carpaccio, Vittoria Carpaccio. It's a wonderful, wonderful artist. And picture that with my love of George Harriman and Crazy Cat. And picture that with my love with Daumier. And on and on. You know, the person that connected us in a certain way was Bill Steig. Yeah. Unmistakable genius, maybe the greatest of them all on The New Yorker. What did Bill Steig do for you? He puzzled me for one thing. I was never that focused on psychology and human psychology Hmm. the way he was and his devotion to... um, was that psychiatrist? Wilhelm Reich. Reich. And his Reichian box. I sat in his orgone box. His wife was a little embarrassed about it, and he didn't want much to talk about it, but he was supposed to feel energy, mysterious energy. Mm. Exactly. And uh, he evidently did. But he left me behind on that one. <laughs> I mean, in Do terms of drawing genius, he surely was able to to embody all that in a very mystical, psychologically profound way. As far as artists, per se, other influences, Glias Williams, who's focused rather than on the psyche, on the social. I mean, he was very, very observant of, you know, human behavior. Snippets, moments, frozen moments which is what a cartoon is. It's a frozen stew. Of, you have to unthaw if you pay attention to it and look at it because it's orchestrated. 
in such a way that your eyes are always taken into the social situation. And the more time you spend with Aglaeus Williams, the more you understand and receive. You know what puzzles me? Really is the spiriting, is to notice how most people look at the kind of frozen moments that I love and wish mm. they would spend a time with. You know, just have a nice, a nice time, sit down, have a, a drink or a tea or something, and spend some time with it. It doesn't happen that much. It's funny the cartoons, though, that all of Bill Steig's you can look back on again and again and again, and there's something new in that, that little boy sticking his tongue out at the bully. Or um, You go back to the era of Charles Adams, no? Yeah. I met him briefly. Very proper man, very reserved of his class, really. Somewhat upper class. <laughs> I mean, it was privileged. And he lived amongst the privileged. I mean, those were the ones who loved Charles Adams. Didn't you love Charles Adams? <laughs> or familiar Charlie Adams. Or Charles. Peter Arno, did you know him? I never met him, no. Sempe. 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 Jean-Jacques. Jean-Jacques Sempe. There's an influence there, no? There was. I met him in Paris at some point, or I met him in New York. I can't remember exactly the moment when we became friends. And he is a, uh, a genius. He's my most prox. I have most proximity oh. to him in many ways. The observed detail. Really strong irony mm. between how the petit bourgeois, or let us say, in English, you know, the entitled middle class lives, but then the contradiction. I mean, these, these huge American buildings and these little men looking at them mm. or playing the piano. He too is a jazz maven. He loved jazz. Big question, where does the humor come in? And when does it have to come in, in a cartoon? Well, also, almost an unanswerable question. Basically, I think, if I'm pressed to the wall, I mean, it's a, it's a contradiction. I mean, with these little, little humble people living in an overwhelming world, which is how I feel. I'm overwhelmed by this era that I find myself in. When did you last feel overwhelmed? I was comfortable politically and socially. I would say before the dictatorships started to arise, before Putin became aggressive, before the uh, supporters of our preceding president. We won't mention him. I mean, it unleashed brutality. And we become more brutal since. And uh, the, the air is too toxic now. It's most dispiriting. And I'm not comfortable at all with this. And in many ways, I'm in an interesting position to be selfish, which is basically to have the brew that is true, thanks to Vermont, and say goodbye. Mm. Which solves nothing, because I have children and grandchildren. And that 
That's dispiriting. Speak about saying goodbye. You said to me on the phone not long ago that you're wondering if it's time to die. Yeah. And I thought, what is that feeling like? It's both in many ways because I, to survive now in my condition is a constant dance with my body and its needs and paying attention to it and my work and my love of people. And who uh, said, I love my life, I love my life. I don't want to say goodbye. It was um, the poet. He was a clergyman, English poet. Oh. I know you mean. He's got three names. Yeah, yeah. Gerard or Gerald Manley Hopkins. And he, too, had a wonderful life. He said, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I hate to say goodbye. Or something very similar. But you make it such a sweet emotion somehow, Ed. Mm. You remain true to your own cheer, goodness, at the edge of melancholy, but there's a pleasure in your presence to this moment. Well, that's good to hear. This isn't a downer. I mean, I don't want to be a downer to anybody. We don't want to be falsely cheerful either, but you seem so much yourself. Well, I'm accepting. Acceptance is a stoic way that I've adopted. Interestingly enough, I stumbled across stoicism because my son was a philosophy major and said you would really appreciate this. And then I also stumbled across a book written by a, an academic in the Midwest called The Stoic Way of Life, where he talks about how you control things. You let go what you can't control. It only makes sense from a philosophical point of view. I mean, if you get all tied up in a tizzy about something that, that makes you angry and just nasty to others and to yourself, it goes nowhere. I'm so fascinated to discover that you're still working in your studio. You're still, you're still drawing. I'd love you to speak of just what you're doing. Well, right now, I'm concocting some new cartoon ideas for the magazine. <laughs> I want to hear to them. To submit. They're over there on the table. Bring them over and I'll show them to you. Uh, I'm just sitting there waiting to figure out how to send them because I'm technically a dunce. It's too late to bother learning. These are what you call roughs. They call rough ideas. It's submitted to the editor and the cartoon editor. First, the cartoon editor, who uh, takes them and uh, decides to submit them to the art meeting, at which point the art editor and whoever is the editor. And Sean and Lee Lorenz played those roles back in the... Uh, the great William Sean. And Lee Lorenz, a great fan of yours. And great cartoonist, full of life and energy. These are hard to describe, but the captions mean something. The gal leaping into the arms of a centaur, it seems, and she's saying, I always fall for guys with cloven hooves. Yeah. Here, I can read them, too. Please. Yeah. I mean, these are for consideration. 
<clears throat> so here's the situation. I mean, for one thing, it's, it's a damn close to impossible to describe a situation, a cartoon, which is so much based on the verbal and the visual. I mean, they are inseparable. And uh, when somebody tries to describe a cartoon, it always fails. So it might fail with me, too, because there's, it's, there's such a tangible aspect of the visual and the verbal. I mean, it's a real uh, mating. They're married to each other. And then shaken up on ice and just frozen in time. But they're alive anyhow. So here's a, a baseball diamond with dads. And the, there's a big, fat dad. Uh, and he's arguing with the pitcher or the umpire, somebody on his team. And then she, there's a wife, several wives, sitting on the benches. This is the kind of softball game that would go on in Central Park. Without that caption, it would make no sense. And she says, it's an achievement I'm not proud of. I've outlasted his first wives by two years. <coughs> so I work on that caption a lot. So there's one. And then there's a, another <coughs> hard to describe. Oh, that's funny. Who did that? Corin? Yeah, I think I've seen it. Looks like Corin to me. Yeah, well, it should. Here's a couple at the door of a uh, party, upscale-ish party, hence the martini glass, which establishes class and place in society. He says, damn, I forgot the invitation said athletic attire only. <laughs> and all in this upscale-ish party, people dress for biking, for running, and there's one that should have a skiing helmet, which I'll put on. It's about everything. Helmets, misunderstandings, pretensions, sports, being very sportif, which I was in my time. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's all stagecraft. It's all stagecraft. The people coming in are dressed formally, black tie, mm -hmm. formal dress. Everybody else just came in from running a marathon or something. Or something. And the helmets are the <laughs> key to it. I mean, that's the funny thing about it. It becomes a, a nuance. But the eyes, the interaction, the yes. emotional, the way people interconnect. I'm looking at a poster ad of yours, Ed Corrin, the capricious line, but there's that character, hairy guy on a bike. When did this signature look of hairy people, the furry Corrin characters, how did that come into your life? I think it crept in. <laughs> I mean, these are not decisions. They're at least conscious decisions. They just happen. And at one point I probably said, that might be funnier if it's hairier. <laughs> it might remove it from the present connotations and add to them at the same time. Once upon a time, was there a Corrin cartoon without that hairy-looking person? There were, absolutely. What did they look like? Hairless. <laughs> Sans hair. Bare bone. Bare, but not bones. Just bare. More traditional. I was following the footsteps of my esteemed predecessors, and I kind of kept going. 
that was a great day when you found the Corrin look. The whole world knows that cartoonist. I get it, you know. I don't have the humility to wonder about it myself. I just accept. I accept. Do we see you in your cartoons? Absolutely. Contradictory, curmudgeonly, loving, joyful, sweet, critical, a kind of ping-pong ball of emotions and thoughts, and influences, too, of all kinds. We'll get to your environmental drawings. That marvelous show you did at the Peabody Essex in Salem, Massachusetts, combined your drawings of soon-to-be-extinct animals and a photographer's work with polar bears Mm -hmm. on their last icebergs. And it was the eyes that connected them. Yeah. You said you always have to get the eyes first. The eyes. The expression. The quote that I come back to often, the secret source. It's Mark Twain. The secret source of humor is sorrow. Mm. And I think that encapsulates it for me beautifully. And fun. And joy. And laughter. So that's a drawing that started with lithography in Paris, where I went to study at a print shop early on after my college graduation with the then most famous resuscitator of printmaking in the country, which has lapsed, and that is etching and engraving. I somehow discovered my home, my drawing style was liberated by etching with an etching needle because it's so free. Your pictures of the almost extinct animals mm-hmm. are so sad. And doing improbable things like riding a unicycle over all the detritus of collapse. Like Jared Diamond's book who also intrigued me a lot that and Elizabeth Colbert's book on the sixth extinction. And somehow they combined in my mind to produce these these works. Well, here's one that I think is really germane to our situation. This one. A woman scrubbing a toilet, and there's a, a kind of visual setup, a little camera on a tripod, and she's pleased as punch with joy. And she's saying to her husband and small daughter, I've just started scrubbing the toilet, and I already have 27,000 views. (laughs) So there's that one. And there's another one I really, which also speaks to the moment, if I can find it. You never know what will catch some editor's whim, like Remnick. I don't know where it is, but it's very timely. They're all timely. Here's one outside the Sperm National Bank, and the gunman is carrying a huge test tube and pointing his gun at the teller. Oh, yeah. Sperm National Bank. Considering how banks are being, you know, falling apart. In every possible way. (laughs) One more, okay. Bank, you know, tellers, a transaction being done, and there's a painter in the background 
and the painter says, your transaction being recorded by our security painter. <laughs> what is it like to have the other side in view? Scary and very uh, triste that I will miss it all. I don't want to miss it, but I have to. I mean, the laws of entropy are not in my favor. You know, I like to uh, make the analogies of the jalopy. You can just nurse it along so much before the whole thing falls into rusty shreds and can move no further. But you still lift our spirits, Ed, and I want you to know that and, and accept that. My philosopher, William James, mm. knew he was on his deathbed, and he summoned his brother Henry, the mm. novelist, and said, I want you to stay in the house for six weeks after I'm gone. I want to be in touch from the other side. The Bardo. Exactly. Who wrote that book on the Bardo? George Saunders. Saunders. Wonderful Saunders. Yeah. You've had him. Yes. He's great. When we talked about that book, we also remembered Ralph Waldo Emerson going to the grave of his first wife mm. and wanting to see her again. There was a bit of that. In the 19th century, I think people really thought that was a possibility. Yeah. Maybe it was. Yeah, maybe it is. I mean, there's no answer. There's no, there's no way of texting back saying, you know what? Not so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still here. Ed, I'm, I'm just fascinated by our friendship. It was probably 10 years ago that I discovered that you were listening to our programs. Oh, yeah. And I thought, Avidly. well, it's just a radio program, but Ed Corrin is listening somewhere, uh-huh. and it might be important. It put wind in our sails that Ed Corrin was listening. Oh, Jesus, really? Can't tell you how pleased that makes me feel. <laughs> As the standard of humor and of cartooning, even drawing, changed sort of fundamentally in The New Yorker in the last, what, 10, 20, 30 years? Since the old, us older folks have... The ones that made the art famous. ...successfully shuffled off the newer... I shouldn't say this, but I'll I'll say it. There's an emotional void. For one thing, people don't look at each other. They don't address each other. They haven't... There's no kind of emotional... I mean, the very new, new uh, recruits. And I know this, well, my wonderful champion, and I would say deep friend, David Remnick, might take umbrage at this. But I think that's a real problem. Is it an eye contact thing? Well, it's the lack of skill. It's skillless drawing. It's stick figures. It's lack of observation. Lack of the nuanced take on human life. And it's all about the young and their lives. You know, the, um, the new generation, the 20s, out of college, in college. They don't have a sense of observation and slowing things down. There's just too much else going on. So the way people stand, their body language, their relation to each other, all the things that make the mini-dramas, dramas, are more ideas. What dropped out of the education of this generation, do you think? Well, now there, 
is the question, you know, which we are all addressing. That generation, my generation, interactive. And yes, it's privileged. Yes, it's, it was rarefied. But under Tina... You mean Tina, Tina Brown. Everything changed and began to go downhill. And uh, in many ways, including circulation. I'm fascinated to discover, Ed, how many people know you, and they all adore you. Bill McKibben was the latest. I was with him, and I said, do you know a fellow in Vermont named Ed Korn? He said, are you kidding? He might be my closest friend. He's everybody's closest friend. But then you were telling me about years past when the Toms used to gather in your house. It was Tom Winship, editor of The Globe, Tom Wicker, Mm -hmm. columnist from The New York Times, Tom Powers, and Tom Powers, who wrote a lot of people say the best book ever on the CIA, yeah. The Man Who Kept the Secrets, wrote a wonderful piece the other day on Joan Didion in the London Review of yes, Books. Yes, I heard about that. When the Toms would gather in the Corrin house, uh, what would you talk about? we talk about politics, of course, literature, of course. I mean, Tom Winship, was his focus was on news, on neighbors, because yeah. he loved his neighbors. That's what we talked about, everything, the whole range of conversation in every way. What did they expect from the famous cartoonist? Maybe a guffaw now and then. He's always good for a guffaw. <laughs> Ed, you've said a lot. I'm still especially interested in, in that sort of teetering consciousness between this life and the next one. And what you see out there past your green burial? I see a lot of mushrooms, the mushroom roots, mushrooms themselves. I plan to befriend them. I'll stick around for quite a while in that way, and uh, I'll contribute. That'll be my contribution. Oh, yeah, he's a great contributor to mycelium. The old line, from dust to dust, is not true. We don't come from dust, and we don't return to dust. We come from life, and we return to life. Exactly. And uh, that was my goal. So a friend of mine, dear friend, I've all pitched in. This would never happen in the city. I shouldn't say never. I mean, one of the most, the proudest, most awestruck uh, moment I've had. I mean, when you ask about comparing staying put in an urban setting with people who have a kind of literacy to understand my work. And also, professionally, you know, there's a standing. But that's it. It's just professional. Here, Curtis in cahoots with a guy organized a parade of fire trucks to pay tribute. So beautiful, so right, Ed. Get weepy. It was so touching. Oh, yeah, and there was an event at the town hall. So people gathered there. And then around the corner, a parade of fire trucks from different towns. Oh, my God. They stopped. They do something they would never, ever do in their lives. Just come up to the porch, give me a hug. Oh, man. I've been telling Mary, it's hard to describe Ed Corrin. He, he, you're the Brookfield, Vermont Pope of 
of all of us. Too exalted. Cheerleader of love. Cheerleader of joy. How's that? And it's true. I'm not glossing it over. I've given myself a, a different persona. And there's so many parts to this machine. I just mm. don't know which one. I can put my finger on and say, we're communitarian or artist or mocker or the reality show. <laughs> Ed, thank you. Oh, Chris. Thank you for being... Are you kidding? This is wonderful. This wonderful. Thank you for making me know somehow that we would have a good conversation. You did. You have. There was no wind in my sail this morning. None. And now I'm just coasting along. <laughs> I'll be back tomorrow, Ed. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasters. This week, try Hub and Spoke's Soonish from technology journalist Wade Rausch. Find it at soonishpodcast.org. And you can see the full Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. <laughs>